Well, good morning. I'm excited to be back here. Um, super grateful for this church and uh, just what it means to me and to our family to be commissioned by you, to be loved by you. Uh, Justin was just telling me, uh, Justin, our executive pastor for Seven Mile Road, he was just telling me, you could not be more loved by your church community. And I believe that. I feel that and I experience that. And so um, you all have done a terrific job of loving our family as uh, we've served here and loving our family even as we're being sent to go serve elsewhere. And so I just want to thank you from my heart uh, for all of that. Um, so Mandy's, uh, pa- Mandy's reading was sort of how my week went. I started out with that passage and then really just felt like uh, I wanted to talk about mission and sacrifice, but I really felt like God was calling me to talk about worry and the kingdom of God, because I think worry really comes into, um, really bleeds into the idea of sacrifice. Like, what are we willing to let go for the kingdom of God? I'm going to go ahead and pray for, uh, for our time, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for uh, just this day. Thank you for this day where we get to be with our family again, where we get to um, just enjoy seeing the new faces that have come to Seven Mile Road Waltham, where we get to enjoy seeing the old faces that uh, bring comfort and joy to our souls. And I just pray, God, that you would use your word today to help us combat worry in the name of seeking the kingdom. Uh, May your word go forth in our hearts. May we be changed after hearing it. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's sermon, like I said, was supposed to be about mission. Like I was going to talk about the nuts and bolts of mission, but we're going to look at kingdom uh, and worry, worry in the kingdom of God. In our passage this morning, Jesus points out that these two things are opposed to one another. He tells us three times not to be anxious. Easier said than done, right? Like, have you ever been anxious or worried about something? And then somebody comes up to you and says, don't worry, it's going to be all right. Solves the problem, right? Well, we're going to see that this isn't what Jesus is doing. He's not telling us to stop worrying. He's going to do much more than that. He's going to offer us something much greater. And we'll get to that. But first, I want to talk about what worries us. What do we worry about? There's a spectrum of worry, right? From uh, fear of walking alone at night to the fear of being a victim of a terrorist attack. From uh, the worry that you'll get the stomach bug to worrying that you're going to get a cancer diagnosis. From worrying that we won't get what we want to wondering if we're going to get what we need. What keeps you up at night? Do you worry about your family? Do you worry about the decisions that your children are making? The lurking consequences of bad choices that you made in your past? No matter who you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter the amount of stuff you've got, you're not immune to worry, right? We're all worriers. All the things that I just listed have one thing in common. We don't have ultimate control over any of them. You can't control being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Even the wisest series of decisions could land you there. You can't control the inner workings of your body. You can't control your genetic makeup, your susceptibility to disease. You can't control your children. And if we stop there, if we just leave it there and meditate on that, it's terrifying. I'm getting anxious just talking about these things, right? I worry about my family all the time. I'm the text me when you get there kind of guy, safety first kind of person. We've got all the child locks, all the plug covers. I've made sure all of our plants aren't poisonous, 
right? The car seats are in at the right angle, strapped in just right. All good things, right? But even with that, I don't have the power to prevent disaster. And I hate that. And if I'm honest, there have been times when I haven't gotten that arrived safely text and my mind has wandered to the worst and it's been a complete waste of energy. Some of us are like that with our money. You've got all the budgets, you've got the projections, you follow them all to a T. Again, not a bad thing in and of itself, but it won't take much just to consume everything that you've worked so hard for, that you've saved and that you manage. People who have had more than all of us combined have lost it all. So what do you do? We're faced with these options. We can feed our anxiety, like most of the world does, by hoarding our resources, overflowing the small cup of control that we have. The only thing that grows in that case is our anxiety, right? Not our control. We can do that. Or we can recognize and embrace our dependence on the one who's truly in control. We can align ourselves with his rule, with his reign and his mission, and then we can find peace. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. And as we work through this passage, we're going to look at Jesus' instruction on how we get there. He's going to talk about our value. He's going to talk about our dependence. And he's going to talk about our ambition. So those are the three things that we're going to look at that Jesus is addressing today in God's word. Our value, our dependence, and our ambition. Now, this passage is part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mountain. In this sermon, Jesus is reorienting listeners' perspectives from their uh, earthly way of thinking to a kingdom of God way of thinking. He's flipping things on their head. He's saying things like, instead of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy, do the first thing and pray for your enemy. Instead of giving so that people will think that you're super generous, give in secret. Lay up for yourself imperishable heavenly treasure instead of perishable earthly treasure. In verse 24, just before our passage today, he tells his listeners, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And now in Matthew 6, verse 25, he's gonna tell them what it looks like for those who are going to make that transition from serving another master to serving God, to being about God's agenda, to being about God's mission. See, worldly worry is opposed to kingdom-focused mission. Look with me at verse 25. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus starts this off with the word therefore, right? And that's the reason why I wanted to give you some context behind like where he is. Whenever we see a therefore, we have to look back and see where the speaker is drawing this information from. So for Jesus, it was his previous word that you can't serve God and money, that you can only have one master. So therefore, if you choose to serve God, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about food, drink, clothing. Why? Well, his first answer comes in the form of a rhetorical question. He asks, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he expects the obvious answer to be yes. Yes, life and body are more than those things, right? Our very being is more valuable than what we have, what we eat, or what we wear. 
If God both created us and continues to sustain us, why can't we trust him with the lesser things? See, it's not God whose value system needs adjusting. The real question when we worry is why are we valuing things meant to serve our lives and our bodies more than our lives and bodies themselves, which are valued by God and given purpose by him? By that I mean, why do we lessen our value by summing up our lives in terms of material needs, food, shelter, clothing, all important, all necessary, but not all there is. We're more than cars that need oil and fuel and a good wash every now and then, right? Our needs are greater than that, greater than just keeping on. And God's purpose for us is much weightier than that. Just a couple chapters ago in Matthew chapter four, Jesus, having fasted for 40 days, is out in the desert, tempted by Satan to abandon the mission of God for a loaf of bread, the saving mission of God. He's hungry. He's tempted to satisfy his hunger and abandon this mission by the devil. And when the devil tempts him, Jesus says this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, if we go back, if we go way back to Genesis 3, we see our first parents, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, trading dependence on him, trading unhindered relationship with him, trading the mission that they've given them to spread the truth, beauty, and goodness all over the world, trading all of that for a piece of fruit, for some food, right? And at that point, Adam and Eve were ruled by their appetites, not by God. Not just their appetites for food, but their appetites for ultimate control. God created them to rule over the earth. He gave them dominion, yes. He gave them a measure of control, but with one restriction. Not to eat a particular fruit that would lead to their death. But they didn't like that they couldn't control God. So they, unlike Jesus in the desert, believed the lie from Satan. And they traded the word of God for food, thinking that it would make them like him. And instead, it plunged humanity into sin. Death entered the world. Now we're in this perpetual cycle of operating this way, right? Our response today is a lot like their response then. If I can just get a little more power, if I could just get a little more control over my circumstances, then I'll have true peace. We know from their experience and really from our own that this just isn't true. The powerful and the wealthy also spend their nights sleepless when they don't trust in Jesus, when they believe the same lies. So back to Jesus' question, is life not more than food? Of course it is. We were created for more. We're more valuable than that because God values us and he's given us a unique purpose. And Jesus gets into this in our next verse. If you look with me at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So this is another rhetorical question, right, that we should answer with, yes, we are more valuable than they are because God created us in his image. And because of that, he cares for us more. He uses a similar illustration in verses 28 through 30. Look with me there. And why are you anxious about clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, our answer is expected to be yes. Of course he will. But is that really our heart level answer? Jesus first tells us to look at the birds and the lilies, right? Is anyone here a bird watcher? Have any bird watchers in the house? So you're one step ahead of us to see how birds get their food, right? Uh, Jesus points us to the provision of birds and he says that if God feeds them, won't he feed you? Same with the lilies of the field. If anything, they're a picture of complete dependence on God. Jesus says, look how they grow. They don't toil. They don't sew clothing. They don't need to buy expensive dyes. They don't need makeup of any kind to be beautiful. These sound like wildflowers, right? Lilies of the field, not tended to by a human, just out there in the field, growing on their own and beautiful because God sends rain and sunshine and he made them with all that they need to avail of his provision. And he says, if God does this for grass of the field that's eventually used to fire up your ovens, won't he do it for you? You have greater value. You have greater purpose than that, oh, you of little faith. And there's the problem identified, right? Jesus identifies this as a faith issue. It's a belief issue. Do I really believe God? Not just do I believe in God, but do I believe him? Do I believe this is true? Now, at this point, if you're like me, you might be thinking, well, animals starve to death, right? There's this heartbreaking video that uh, was circulating a while back of this polar bear who's searching for food, and ultimately, he starves to death. That video comes to mind when I hear that. But people starve too, right? They're going hungry today, in fact. Why is that? I want us to see what Jesus is promising here. And it's not that we're free from responsibility. It's not that we're free from trouble. It's not that we're free from natural disaster. It's not that we're free from sinful actions or the consequences of those actions. He's showing us that we can be free from worry. And he's not done. He's not trying to turn our attention to our physical needs at all, actually. He's trying to turn our attention to our greater need, our need for God which when it's met, can free us from worrying about the rest. And he's speaking the truth over us that we're valued and loved by our creator, that we're more than food, that we're more than clothes. And I also want to add that we live in a cursed world, right? I mentioned our first parents in Genesis a little bit ago that they were promised death as a result of choosing fruit over God. And that death is seen today in the spiritual darkness of our world and the oppression of people by other people, the hoarding of resources due to the very sin of worry that Jesus is calling out in this passage, the sin of placing material worth over the value of human beings, the sin of placing self before God. And he has plans for that. We're gonna get to that in a little bit. I came across a quote by theologian John Stott the other day. He says this, the most basic cause of hunger is not an inadequate divine provision, but an inequitable human distribution. The resources are there, but the humanity is not because of sin. 
This is why in so many other passages of scripture, people pray for the justice of God because we live in a broken world. This is why God calls his people in Micah 6, 8 to do justice, to love kindness. None of that changes how God values you. None of that changes the truth that you were meant for more and that none of that changes the fact that we're ultimately dependent on him and that our ambition should move away from the acquisition of security, of material needs, and toward the kingdom of God. So God loves us, and he values us. That's what Jesus is getting at at the beginning of this passage. And knowing that about our relationship with him should bring peace to the believer as you think about the fact that you are ultimately dependent on him. God values us, and we're dependent on him. Look with me at verse 27. Jesus asks this, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your span of life? Answer, no one. Anxiety is powerless. Worry is powerless. Worry doesn't prevent bad things from happening and it won't make good things happen either. All it does is steal our joy and steal our peace. We're dependent on a God who we've already learned is the creator and sustainer of our lives. We can't add days to our life, simply not in our control. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't live wisely, right? We shouldn't uh, avoid being healthy. Uh, Health does contribute to a long life. I believe that. But at the same time, some of the healthiest people die early. Some of the people who care nothing about their health seem to live forever, right? Right? Why? I don't know. But we're powerless, ultimately powerless over the longevity of our lives. Even if we have control over our health, we have no control over natural disasters, right? No control over a tornado. No control over a car swerving into our lane. No control over a plane losing an engine. So why worry and try to control these things? You know, one thing that I do when I'm on a flight Uh, Whenever there's turbulence on a plane, my hands get sweaty, and I immediately switch to the map view on the uh, little TV in front of me. I want to check our altitude, make sure that we're keeping steady, not going down or up in any weird way. Uh, My muscles tense, and I grab the sides of my seats like I'm holding the plane up in the air, right? And each time I think, why am I doing this? This does absolutely nothing. Do I think I've somehow taken control of the flight by doing that? That would be totally worse, by the way. It makes no sense, yet I do it. I'm powerless, and I recognize that a lot when I'm in the air. A friend of mine uh, a while back was talking about when she received the diagnosis that she had a heart attack and something was wrong with her heart, and she was only 41 years old. All she heard was, you're gonna die. And it wasn't true. She's still alive. But the illusion of control was ripped from her quickly with those words. What would it take for it to be ripped from you? Not much. Our control is so frail. To try to hang on to it like it's God will fail us and it will leave us worse off than we were before. We're dependent on God and he's good. We can trust him. In reality, we really don't have anywhere else to look. We're fooling ourselves if we do. Let's preemptively trust our lives to the one who loves us rather than the things that we love. God knows what we need. 
He isn't aloof. He isn't ignorant. He isn't careless. And he isn't stingy. Let's read Jesus' words in verses 31 through 34. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. When Jesus says that the Gentiles seek after these things, what he's talking about is the people who are separated from the people of God, the people who didn't know God. He's saying that those people who have no relationship with God live this way. Those who have a relationship with him don't need to live this way because God knows our needs and we know our God. Jesus calls him our heavenly father multiple times in this passage. This isn't a distant, careless God. This is a God who sees us as his children. We're part of a different family. We have a different value system than the world around us. We have a different God. We have a personal God, one who knows our needs, a gracious God who supplies those needs. We have an intervening God. And if you have any doubts about his character, I'd point you to the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, God in the flesh, God the Son, Jesus Christ. During his ministry on earth, he depended on the Father. In John 4, 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to do the will of the Father. And that will was to go to the cross. Jesus himself says in verse 34 of our passage today that each day has enough trouble of its own. He never promises that trouble won't come. And he's painfully aware of that at the time that he's sharing this. 20th century preacher, uh, Helmut Thilik, Thilike, I didn't do enough research to figure out how to pronounce his name. He commented on this in a sermon that he gave in Germany right after World War II. He said this about Jesus sharing this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, we know the sights and sounds of homes collapsing in flames. Our own eyes have seen the red blaze and our own ears have heard the sound of crashing, falling, and shrieking. Nevertheless, I think we must stop and listen when this man, Jesus, whose life on earth was anything but bird-like and lily-like, points us to the carefreeness of the birds and the lilies. Were not the somber shadows of the cross already looming over this hour of the Sermon on the Mount? God's love for you is proven on the cross of Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that this was his fate, tells us not to worry. Jesus, who is the physical evidence of God's love for us. While we're valuing control and security over God, he was valuing our life over his. Crucified for our sins, taking the penalty of our sin, death, taking death in our place. But he's not just the evidence of God's love. On top of that, he's the evidence of God's provision. Because he was raised from the dead, life and body, eating and wearing clothes, Jesus is the ultimate evidence of God's provision for us. And now he sits at the right hand of the heavenly father and he's promised to restore this broken world, to end oppression, to end disaster, to end need. And those who believe in him are promised that provision. Resurrection life in a restored world. This is why we can trust him same pastor who I just quoted says this in his same sermon. 
The opposite of tormenting care or worry is not the carefreeness of those who are amply and securely provided with all the necessities of life. Just ask whether the man in the mansion sleeps better than the man in the tenement. No, the opposite of care is the peace of God which I can find when Jesus Christ has taken my hand and put it back in the hand of the Father. So what does this tell us to do? Uh, what does Jesus tell us to do besides worry, right? What's the positive change that we can make to free us from this tormenting care? Where should we orient our ambition? Look with me at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Our ambition should be to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does he mean? Should we be searching for a hidden kingdom somewhere? Should we just say, I'm all set with today and tomorrow, and I'm just going to go to sleep until Jesus comes back? No. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God here, he's talking about the rule of God. He's talking about the reign of God. He's flipping our natural order on its head again, just the way he's done throughout this entire sermon on the mount. He's reorienting us contrary to our rule, contrary to our control, our kingdoms. He calls us to seek God's rule and reign in our lives. This is where we find the freedom we see in Jesus and the freedom that he's calling us to. Not in our control, but in the submission to the rule of God. God's kingdom is Christ ruling over his people. To seek his kingdom first is to repent of our sin, to believe in him, to follow him, to be his disciples, to be about his work, to be about his mission. To seek the kingdom is a desire to see Jesus's reign spread all over the world, to, to see those who are not free to be freed, just like we've been freed to see those who are not saved, to be saved just like we've been saved. When we shift our gaze here away from ourselves, away from our own appetites, worry dissolves. When we make ourselves about the kingdom of God, our grid for success changes. Our definition of need changes. Jesus goes through this in the Lord's Prayer, uh, just a few verses up. Your kingdom come, your will be done a request made even before he requests our daily bread, right? Our daily bread should be received with the understanding that we're dependent on him and with the intention of driving his mission forward in our lives. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, Luke 9.10. Jesus came to set the captives free, Luke 4.18. Jesus commanded his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, to teach them all that he commanded, to be witnesses of him throughout the world. This is our spiritual food. This is our clothing, just like Jesus said. My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. We talked about how God values those made in his image, right? If we're about his kingdom, then we need to be about people. We're, we're about seeing those that he loves come to know him. This is why we planted a church in Waltham, right? This is why we're planting a church in Hyannis. When we moved to Waltham, we had used all of our money to get here from Dallas uh, back to Massachusetts. We lived with Leanna's parents for two months. I hadn't raised enough money to support our family. No one in Waltham would rent to us. We moved in August, and it wasn't until October 2016 uh, that we finally moved into our apartment. 
And what did we move here for? There were six believers meeting in the Patronella's living room, reading the Bible, telling their life stories. And this is supposed to be a church one day, right? Yeah, look at it now. Now here we are again, not fully fundraised, in a home that's a bit of a fixer-upper with a lot of work left to do, um, no real team assembled. That's scary. That scares me. So should we quit? Do we do it because it's fun? Do we do it because it's easy? Do we do it because we're without opposition? Do we do it without worry? No. We do it because it's worth it. And we're not special people. It's not me telling you to imitate us because we're super Christians achieving these lofty goals that no one else can attain. We definitely haven't done it perfectly. And there are battles where worry has triumphed. But we have the same call that any Christian in this room has to spread the life-giving message of Jesus. We have the same mission and we have the same provider. You can do this too. What worry in your life is keeping you from being all in on God's kingdom, on God's mission to show and share Jesus to those who don't know him yet? What are you prioritizing? What are you seeking at cost to your pursuit of the kingdom of God? To mobilize with the family of God, to bring the good news of Jesus to the place that you call home. We do it not because we're superstars, but because Jesus says to seek the kingdom first, to prioritize his work and his mission over our comfort. And Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He says we should seek God's righteousness too. What does he mean? The point is that instead of trying to be like God in our control and his sovereignty, we're supposed to take his example of righteousness and imitate that. I mentioned a little bit ago how God has called his people uh, to do justice and love kindness in Micah 6.8. He actually says this after rebuking Israel for their unjust practices, for their oppressive wickedness. And he doesn't just do this uh, to Israel. And it's not the only time in the Bible God hates oppression. God hates that some people hoard resources. God hates that people are starving to death. And God hates oppressive regimes. But what if he could provide through his people. Part of seeking the kingdom and the righteousness of God is asking that God would do on earth as he does in heaven through us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We talked about how Jesus will return and restore the world, right? Why not give our world a preview of that peace? There's no commandment against that. In fact, we're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is where specific commands like help the widow and orphan come in. Why, we do, why do we do these things? Because God values humanity. He's loved us and we're responding to his grace. Let's seek his righteousness by being conduits for his provision. Let's do it in Waltham. Let's do it on Cape Cod. Let's do it across the globe. Just as the church is called the body of Christ, let's be that hand reaching down with relief for the suffering, both spiritually and physically. Let's prove to them that we care, prove to them that God cares while we share the good news that a true savior has come and will come again. God values us. We're dependent on him. May our ambition be to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. Let's pray.